Welcome to Adopting Zero Trust, an independent podcast that dives into the world of zero trust and tells the story of people who are adopting it. Throughout our series, we'll investigate why zero trust is becoming a critical concept for cybersecurity. Our hosts, Elliot Volkman and Neil Dennis, will have transparent and open conversations with the people driving modern security approaches forward while leaving vendor hype behind. It's time to remove implicit trust and buzzwords and get to the root of the movement. All right, everyone. Thank you. And welcome to another episode of Adopting Zero Trust. Today, we have a wonderful guest. And before I hand it off to her to do a proper introduction, I do just want to highlight as Neil and I were kind of chatting through exactly how we were going to build this out, what an ideal guest would look like. Um, there were very few people that came to mind, but the very first person that I reached out to is actually our guest today. So with that being said, and we'll jump into that in just a minute, Maureen, and exactly how I spotted you on LinkedIn and some of those connections that you have you know, sent our way. I'd love to just hear a little bit about your background, what you've been up to, and then we'll kind of jump into it. Sure. So again, Elliot, I'm, I feel so privileged that you chose me to be your first initial guest. And, you know, I'm a huge zero trust advocate. So yeah, it's just a delight. Anytime I get a chance to speak about zero trust, I jump at it. So yeah, so basically, you know, my big, I've been selling software to the enterprise space gosh, 25 years. And I've been very privileged. I do live in the Bay Area. I initially lived in Walnut Creek and then gently made it across the Bay Bridge into the Marina District in San Francisco. And I've sold, you know, with some big players. I've sold solutions from IBM to the enterprise, Microsoft, Oracle. And initially the big jump I had was with BMC. And basically when I finally ended at IBM, that's when I got into the cybersecurity space and I sold Big Fix. So, you know, just as an intro and in, in now selling exclusively a zero trust methodology with the vendors. And I've been doing that now exclusively for about four or five years. Awesome. Nice. So. I think you've incidentally nailed exactly why I wanted to speak to you as among our first few episodes. There is probably no one better on this planet, maybe outside of the organizations that are building technology that are specifically adjacent to zero trust than someone like yourself who literally is having conversations most likely daily and multiple times a day with organizations who are actually interested in implementing zero trust. So for us, obviously we've had some great conversations. You helped connect us with Andrew who is on our first episode. So absolutely amazing background gave us a lot of insight but the stories that you are probably privy to is more likely i guess you probably have just a much larger library than probably anyone else so as i was trying to look around what that would look like how we can mm -hmm. kind of navigate around who would have the most insight who's bumped through you know the most monstrous implementations from the smallest you absolutely came up at the top of my list so that is why you were the very first person i reached out to so i'm very excited well, that we're able to finally coordinate and get you in here yeah you know interesting that you say that because when i started my path my cybersecurity pathway i did not realize that the solutions that i actually were consulting on or selling to or you know what I have you, we're building a zero trust methodology. An example would be when I was with IBM, I sold a product called Big Fix. And that's an endpoint management product. And mm -hmm. I was just so blown away at how this product could give you visibility throughout your entire landscape. I just, I couldn't even understand why 
anyone would even say no to this. Not only could you go and see what was on your landscape, then to begin to understand if your landscape is broken, you now have this platform from Big Fix to find it. Another incident would be with BMC. We had a CMDB. BMC was the kind of the they owned the Remedy platform. Remedy, in back in the day, was a really an amazing help desk slash business management platform that helped people keep the internet up, right? So they had a CMDB. Basically, what's a CMDB? That's where all the assets live, right? So hmm. it, again, it started all started coming to me if you have a CMDB and then you're able to find out where the endpoints relate to the assets. And then by luck, I ended up at a company called Logrhythm. That's a SIM platform, right? So again, almost every vendor that I spent time with, I was beginning, it all began to come together to me. So when I went to Forrester and received my certificate around Zero Trust, it wasn't difficult. It was actually, I was always the one, that one kid in the classroom that's always, I got another question, you know, because I wanted to know more. I always wanted to know more. Interesting. Is that so just curious, is that maybe where you connected with Andrew? Because I know that he went through that program as well. Or was that sort of elsewhere? No, so very interesting. So I connected with Andrew because he was a guest on Dr. Chase Cunningham's podcast. I think it's called Dr. Zero Trust. I'm almost sure that's correct. And so I heard him speak, and that was only a couple of months ago, because I've been Mm. listening to Chase's podcast for almost two and a half years. But piqued my interest with Andrews, he was very specific around IAM and he had just come off of a very recent implementation. And so I had to reach out and say, hey, what's changed in the IAM space? Because I played in that space about two years ago and we chatted. Mm -hmm. And I think more than what's changed, we both wanted to understand this is not as easy as people are beginning to, to think that it is. Because we noticed a lot of companies, many companies will say, you're going to go down the zero trust path. You probably should start with IAM. And I asked mm-hmm. Andres, do you think that's true as well? Because I'm absolutely against that. That's like the last place that I want to go. I am is not sexy. I am is boring. <laughs> <laughs> it's necessary, but it's probably not the first place I would want to spend my time. So that's how we met. I had to call him up and say, listen, Andrew, let's talk. And yeah, we speak very often. Very cool. So, I mean, I know you sort of, and I don't know like the ownership of it, but I do appreciate that y'all are sort of creating a LinkedIn community around Zero Trust. I know when Neil and I were chatting, we was like, hey, maybe we could do this. I don't know if this exists, but as soon as I got that invite, I was like, all right, we're not doing that anymore. Someone else can handle it. <laughs> so, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but what I can tell you is when I was with IBM, I started a group called the Big Fix Group, right, in the Bay Area. And I had several customers. I had the EDU group, so the higher ed group, as well as commercial. And it was just a no-brainer, right? That group, it still meets today. You can go to their Big Fix LinkedIn site. And it was one of the most rewarding things that I had ever done because I always wanted to, but was always nervous. I'm going to get, am I going to get participation? Will people be, you know, kind of shy away because they think I want to sell them something. But you know, Elliot, it ended up being, again, like I said, very rewarding and in existence today. So that is why I decided to do something like this. And to be very honest as well, Elliot, I wanted it to be global. And I'll tell you Mm -hmm. why. I think, Zero trust, if we're going to do it right, 
it, everyone has to be engaged. It, we just don't want to say, oh, this is how we do it in the U.S. and we do it so much better than our peers, right? Or right. someone like, we don't want to fragment it. Let's keep mm -hmm. it whole. Let's keep everyone having conversations. You know, Neil, and you know how it goes. Some people can say, well, I think this is a better way. Or we have AI influence. Or I get that. It's yeah. going to grow, but we need that solid foundation. So I want to say real quick, you're the first person I think we've really talked to from this, like the sales perspective, like the product perspective outright. Okay. Yeah. And, right. and so kind of thinking of that, I think this is a neat take on the whole construct as a whole. You've been in it for a while. You've been doing it from a couple of different vantage points. You've been doing it from the product perspective, but from what I've seen so far, your mentality isn't, you're personally fixated on trying to overcome the hype, which is what's really good. Like trying to overcome the marketing fluff. On um, what's there. And so I've seen that already just in that little group on LinkedIn, just a little bit, as well as in some of the conversations in general. So first off, props for that, because I have to work with sales teams in my day-to-day -day job. And we all know sales can go one of two ways. It can be overly hype, or it can be where it actually needs to be and actually get people with the right solutions. And so it's kind of neat to get this perspective and understand. So all that to say, how much of this do you think is actually hype versus not hype? So that, that is a great question. And I wish I had a solid answer and it would be something like, it's a sales hype because, but the real truth is, the real truth is that we are not as mature as we think we are. Or let me say this, the people who are purchasing products are not as mature as they think they are around zero trust architecture because they think I'm gonna buy a sale point product, which is an IAM product, I'm on my way. You know, it's like, oh, I'm zero trust now because I got this product and the, this product started with zero trust, blah, blah, blah. So I, I must be there. So, so the reason why the hype is still kind of winning is because people are listening to it. It's just like many years ago when everything was fat free. Oh, I can eat that because it's fat free, right? Or yeah. I can have that because it's zero carbs, right? No, you can't have a box of crackers because there's zero, it, it, it's hype, right? So let's get over that. And so I think with time, it's actually going to be now accelerated even more with the federal mandates coming through at the beginning of the year. But I think now, I think people are starting to realize that I just need to learn more about zero trust architecture. So then when we are looking for products and there's many places you can visit that will tell you this NIST suggests this and these seven things are what you should do and here's about 120 products that can help you build your zero trust architecture you know I'm a huge cook I love to cook my kids they you know everyone who knows me knows that I really like to cook and when you put things together like more complicated dishes the end result is you have to have certain products that all come together. And it doesn't matter if it's this product or that, you know, a brand from here or a brand from here. The most important thing is that they all have to come together to make the end product. And that's what Zero Trust, in my mind, the methodology, architecture, that's what it's all about. So I hope that people will continue to learn, just, you know, continue to learn about the Zero Trust architecture and you will be on that pathway. Yeah, I think there's some neat things, like you mentioned, like the NIST framework and then also the class and the search that you've done. Those are things I think people are missing out on when they go talk to just a vendor who happens to have zero trust or zero something in their name. I think most people seem to start their adventure into this with one of two approaches, IAM, 
like you mentioned, <laughs> as a primary course, or they go to a conference and they just look for the word zero on things and they go talk to the vendor. And most of them, to be fair to them, are probably talking to multiple vendors. But a good chunk of the vendors, I think, are still trying to actually really define what it means as a whole. And then on top of that, we don't have like we do with the Cloud Security Alliance structure. You know, the Cloud Security Alliance says to be a secure cloud provider, this is the basics that you need, right? There's that brand awareness around that 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 stamp of approval. Same thing with like online advertising and stuff. There's different brands of approval for these things. And Zero Trust, I don't think, has reached that that structure yet. But maybe with the government insights and the growth, perhaps, do you think that maybe that could help drive us towards a more formalized labeling of what it actually means to do this for the market space? Yeah, you nailed it, Neil. That's exactly what's going to happen because as a business, you know, this is how I actually see it. When the federal government decides if you as a federal entity, whether you're a school or a police department, whatever the entity is, if you then say, listen, if you're not on that pathway, we're going to fine you. We're going to fine you until you get on that pathway because we as a government cannot have things happen like the pipeline scenario. We can't have a hospital go down for four days. We just, these are, you know, a, a, a public school. One of the saddest stories was a, there was a college, at, and I think it's, I'm not mistaken, it was Lincoln College, and it was on LinkedIn. I read about it, and my heart broke because they got, you know, they got affected, and they couldn't pay the ransom. And half the children that went to that college were African-American, and it was subsidized. And as I was reading the story, I just got sadder and sadder. So I'm glad that there's something that is going to say, listen, if you don't take care of this, we're going to find you. But the best part about the story is that the vendors they choose now will also have to consider being what zero trust off at, uh, zero either yeah. down the pathway or already in it. So when a public entity goes to a commercial entity and say we want to buy your product, they should always say, "Are you also zero trust authenticated? Do you follow that? Because if you do, we can we can collaborate. But if you don't, I might have to look at someone else." So that's where it will just all come together anyway, right? Then you have these mega companies, or even not mega, ones that are what we call now our startups, which are, whoo, the field is getting kind of bloated. You know what I mean? It's getting, there's a lot of vendors out there. But then they will take it on immediately because they'll want to get those contracts to where the other people who are not choosing to be more zero trust, um, more on the zero trust pathway, won't get those contracts again. And I, that's a lot. And I know that maybe people are gonna be like, oh, that's crazy. That's not going to happen. But no, that's not crazy because I work with a lot of enterprise accounts and they are on the pathway of zero trust. And do not tell them they are not because, you know, they're putting in the time and they're looking at the products, right? Because when the day comes, they want that multi-million dollar contract again. Yeah. So I think you kind of jumped in front of my next thought flow. So we think about how most of the stamp of approval for some governing entity, one or another, whatever it may be. And there may be some competing standards out there for a time being, yep. right? Then the government tends to pick things up and then you kind of get a consolidated government standard. And then what we tend to see a lot then at that point is, and you were kind of getting into this, I think, was once the government picks it up and once the government helps consolidate a standard around it, we get things like FedRAMP and CMMC Correct. and other things, right? And what that means, not just to operate in the government space, but what it means to operate in just a generic, more secure environment that the government says is a little bit better than day-to-day -day stuff, right? 
And then it trickles back down to all these various organizations and alliances like Cloud Security Alliance and so on and so forth. And then they start prompting, promoting it into their membership a little bit more directly. And so all that, you know, I guess we're probably at the phase since the government is obviously adopting this. Um, yes. And you mentioned this once again, government regulation. So as the government spins this up, do you believe that there will come a time in the next couple of years, if not sooner, where the government does finally officially say, in order to not just do business with us, but to do business in those tertiary realms, you have to have this zero trust mentality for whatever that stamp ends up looking like? Absolutely. There's no question in, in, in my mind, and I would have to say with most of our cyber our cybersecurity community, that day will come. I think the only differentiator is going to be that there are a handful of people who have been in cybersecurity for many years, and they may they don't want to budge on something new. So they may say, yes, zero trust, but there's another zero, and they might name it differently, right? Or maybe there's a, and no need to mention vendors, there are going to be some vendors who are going to say, no, this is really zero trust, right? We have the products that really support it, or you'll get the same benefit from our products as you would from the handful that the government decided would be appropriate. So at that point, the spinning, and it started to happen with a couple of very large vendors, but they pulled back because they realized that they were not being completely truthful, right? So if you hear certain words, you know, realize they had to be careful. And I appreciate that. And that, and again, I would hope that the larger cybersecurity vendors would start putting more education in the front of everything and saying, listen, why don't we do... And so, yeah, so that's one of the things that I really pride myself on is I love assessments. I like ethical hacking scenarios. I like to start the zero trust conversation with what's going on here, right? Because everyone will say, you know, we want to do this or we want to, you know, we want to protect our crown jewels. No, that's appropriate. That's all very appropriate. But what I've learned over the 20 years I've been in software, you have to start with a clean slate. If you don't, you will be spending a lot of mind of time, money, and effort just getting started. And that's why I go back to IAM. If your assets and your database and your CMDB, call it whatever you like, if that's not cleaned up, if you still have new hires in there from last year, you got to clean that up. It's got to be cleaned up, right? And then you can have a successful IAM implementation. You'll be rewarded for that. You then can move on to the access management and off we go. Interesting story. I always tell this story because to, to my kids. When I went to high school, we had to take geometry, we had to take algebra first. Then we took, then you could take geometry and then you can take algebra two and in that order. And I had a boyfriend that I was spending way too much time flirting with in the algebra and the geometry class. And I did not, I did not learn the basics, the different processes that you need to have in order to move to algebra two. I did not learn those. I had to go and I had to take that whole course over again because I didn't retain the basics. So all I'm saying is, uh, you know, you have to do the basics. The hygiene has to be there before you start your zero trust. And now I just gave you guys, you know, five, $6,000 worth of consulting for free, but that's the truth. And the best way to do it is get one of those vendors out there that's been hounding you and say, hey, tell me what's going on in my landscape. Give me an assessment. Give me a, get, let me do a POC. And that's when you can start, right? Yeah. 
Man, yeah, that, that's a lot. So I think from the access controls perspective, right, like you mentioned at the very beginning, a lot of people think it's just as simple as putting up some kind of allow block list, whatever on a device and you're done. But you're right, there's a lot more to go behind all that. I think people forget about the human in the loop aspects of this regardless, right? You mentioned access control for the interns or the new hires from a year ago that are still sitting in the system. And I think a lot of people, they may secure a server to server cons, but they always still forget that there's still a remote login or a rogue login from someone that they forgot just to go expunge the database, right? Stuff like that. Even if they still had zero trust access to that one piece, a lot of people don't have good basic hygiene at the core of all this. And no matter how much that server can only talk to that other server, if you got 18 different creds that are still in there for individual users and only five of them are still valid, you know, what the heck's the point that that juncture? Yeah. So from a stepping stones perspective, you know, we think hygiene first. So what we think is kind of the next steps. If you get that vendor to come in there, run that hygiene check for you, maybe as part of a POC, what are some of the other key components that they should be thinking about as part of those, you know, step one, two, three process? Yeah. So I'm obviously a huge fan of endpoint management. And I will tell you that not all endpoint management products fit the bill, right? Not you. One size does not fit all. So I'm going to say that right out the gate, smaller SMBs or corporate accounts, or even some startups or enterprise accounts, the revenue is high, but the actual personnel is low, employee counts low, but endpoint management, you need to have it because you can't protect what you can't see. Right. Mm -hmm. And no one wants to be the person who doesn't patch appropriately. Right. Because that's just, again, back to hide. So I would say an endpoint product would be high on my list and I would have, I would I seriously doubt that there is anyone running a business now and doesn't have it. So yeah, that's probably num number two. And I'm a huge fan also, and I don't know why people don't talk about this enough, is micro segmentation. I don't know why people kind of say, oh yeah, we're doing that. We have firewalls, net, what? what? <laughs> we have to talk about that a little bit more because micro segmentation is going to you know, save you from that whole you know, sinking ship. I always think about the Titanic. Everyone said, well, that ship wasn't supposed to sink. Yeah, but they weren't, they didn't completely shut it off either, right? They had little gaps at the top and the water kept flowing over, flowing over, and now the ship has sunk. So I would say that's a, another cool, yeah. And that one is sexy because you do get, it goes in faster and you get to really review some of the firewalls you have. So you save some money, right? Because you're going to micro segment, you don't have to have as many firewalls. And I just think from an automation perspective, if that is in the future conversations, it lends itself well. Yeah. Oh, automation. That's another fun one I like to talk about. Yeah. There's a lot of weird things out there for all that. But when you talk about identity access control, when you talk about segmentation of the networks or even just the vulnerability management aspects, I think nowadays, personally, if, if you're not considering some form of automation, not full blown orchestration, no. but right. just some right. modicum of automation in play, then I think you're kind of shooting yourself in the foot on the efficiencies that you can have for any of these aspects of security, especially to me, especially vulnerability management and asset management type stuff. There's a lot of wonderful tools out there that help you automate just one or two clicks and there you, you know, go. You're off to the races, right? Yeah. 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 Because one or two clicks as our software world continues to develop with AI, et cetera, you know, if you don't have it now, then when the other products come in, you're, you got to catch up to the one yeah. or two so that you can take advantage of the one or two in the next series of next generation products. 
And then you're back to where I was, where I'm now having to do a lot of work to understand geometry because I can't, I couldn't move on. Right. Yeah. 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 yeah I, <laughs> I agree. Yeah. I think that's, uh, this is a whole nother topic of discussion that I can go down a personal rabbit hole on, but the whole employee base and skills shortage for what people think it is or isn't. I'm on a particular side of this fence that tends to upset most people. But that being said, you know, back to the automation aspects, if you think you're on one side of that equation and it's negative and you have issues, then yeah, you need to really start thinking about that as a whole. But no, I, I think automation, access management, things like that all have a good cohesive wrapper to play into each other. And like you mentioned, if you're not doing it now, you're going to get forced to do it anyways at some point. And then you're going to have to go back and look at all your legacy things that don't work anymore. And congratulations, either rip and replace or spend a lot more time trying to get up to snuff, especially if this becomes an industry standard and then a legal requirement for whatever industry vertical you're in. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, good stuff. I mean, it's all about reducing the noise and yeah, no kind of, I can, so I understand. So I'll just say this, when I speak to enterprise customers, there's a, there's two types. There's two types of people that are in this office, if you will, in, in the room. There's the one type that's been around for a long time and they're not giving up their power, right? And they don't really even know what Instagram is, right? But they pretend that they do so they can see the pictures of their grandchildren, right? And they're off doing this thing where they think all, all, all's well. And then you got the other group of people who, if that Instagram picture doesn't show up in about three seconds, they have swiped to something else. So you got to figure out, you know, and the in-between is starting, that line is literally dissolved now. So you decide who, you know, if you are in the business development side of the house as I am, or sales and marketing, I have to understand who my customer is. And I also have to understand the culture, if you will, of that business. And if they're all, you know, really hyper, everything's got to go fast, then you, you know where you stand. So you know the challenges you'll have with those who don't. And that's just the world that we live in. It's insecurity is not that easy because people, I know this sounds crazy, but they don't want to admit what they don't know. Oh yeah, I know zero trust. Let's move on. You know, I hear that all the time and I'm like, I don't think they really do, but it's not my place to, to say what they view as zero trust and what they don't, but what my place is not to let them make mistakes because at the highest level, it's about people, people can lose their jobs. We, I don't want to talk about the breaches that we have just witnessed in the last 72 hours. They're mega, they're huge. I don't want to hear about the, those people losing their jobs because the revenue's gone down. So I'm just looking from a strategic point. And one, that's probably one of the main reasons why I'm so passionate about Zero Trust is I want a business to stay healthy. I want to help them you know, be healthy. And I don't want them to have to spend four and five million dollars because you know, Greta and HR saw a fishing hook and said, I won and click. And now we're all spinning down out of control. Right. So, yeah. so, and that, that's, I'm just playing, I'm making fun of that, but that's kind of realistic right now. So, and I know we're having challenges trying to train people better. I, I get that. I do get that. But yeah, it's all about the really the most highest or holistic view. How can we help each other as a community and support each other and make us all live in a very safe world from those cyber pirates out there? Have you guys heard the word cyber pirates? Because I just I haven't heard that before. And I was writing out something. I thought that they're like pirates. They're all just hanging <laughs> out, just trying to 
I, mean, I feel like there's like there's a group of people in the world who just have absolutely nothing else to do. I know that is true, but they're just hanging out and trying to buy and sell, and it's a like a crazy wild west out there, you know. So I, my my background, I've been doing things in the cyber world and somewhere or another before cyber was the official term, I guess yep. loosely. Yep. I mean, the term came around in the '90s, but it didn't latch on until. 2006, 7, 8, somewhere in that range, really. So my one of the first things I did loosely as a personal project, I won, fair disclosure, I pirated music like any good person with Kazaa or Limelight or Napster, right? Uh, (laughs) Before it became officially illegal, I want to be clear. But on that same as software piracy and things like that became a big issue in the early 2000s. And then moving forward into 2005, 6, 7, 8, in that range, what was really huge, courtesy of Kazaa and all those other tools. I actually worked on a volunteer project that was trying to combat online piracy. So when you say cyber pirates, we all were one at one point in time if we had a computer in the 2000s. And then two, actually cyber piracy as a whole thing. I was in a meeting when they started coining the phrase and trying to go out and hunt these people down and find all the before whaling meant getting a ceo whaling meant going after these big cyber pirates and stuff like that oh, loosely yeah. in some of these okay. forums and so so yeah i i love terminologies and our lexicon shifts and how things go in this world so it's kind of fun to think about but Absolutely. anyway Weird anecdote about a life that kept me way too busy. But we didn't have zero trust back then. We had P2P networks, open trust models, right? And that's kind of the weird thing is I think our bracket of people, you know, if you were around in the 2000 range, early 2000s, 90s, early 2000s, all the way up to probably 2010-ish, plus or minus, I would go as far as to say maybe the open trust model probably hit a big ship when APT1 was publicized. I think it was probably a huge turning point, I would think, from public space with the corporate world. But prior to that, you know, we had a lot of just implicit and open trust mentality. I mean, heck, we had Wi-Fi networks that you could drive down the neighborhood that weren't by default locked up even when we got past web, right? So you didn't have to go war driving. You just had to go sit in a park and you had free back in the day. So I don't know. It's kind of neat to see how things have shifted so quickly for us from that open trust mentality where everything's good to go. The Internet's a perfect place and, you know. Uh, pre-HTML5 and all this other stuff, you could just do whatever you want. And the network said, yeah, we think everybody's good. So do you, I mean, kind of thinking about that, moving from that implicit trust model and open trust to zero trust and getting us off into the right world. Do you think from an internet comms perspective, how, how do you have anything insights wise around how that's kind of maybe shifted stuff from a just a general day-to-day business loop and how the communications networks and stuff like that have kind of maybe started to take part into this loosely? Yeah. I mean, yeah. So, so just to go one step backwards, my father was in the military and we carried a card, it's called an ID card. And that card had our social security number on it. Right. So we would show it to everyone. Hey, (laughs) anyone want to see myself? And now, oh my God, if you put even the last four or five, don't put my social security number down, right? Are you crazy? So yeah, so that's how far we go, yeah. So I was gonna say, here's the truth of the matter is, if you have a smartphone, you probably bank on your phone. You have your health records on your phone. I mean, everything is so accessible on the mobile unit. The applications now, right, are just so so numerous and so much data, right? Because we have just as much going in as we have going out. So it makes sense, yeah. right? We have to be very secure. You just have to be more careful. And I think clearly with COVID, businesses, yeah, they focused on it, but now that they have most of their workforce 
coming in two or three times a day, but the other times they're at home, working from home. A lot of engineers are just not even going to go back. Why would they? They don't get, they get far more done and, you know, they just have a better quality of life. So that's how I, I, I'm, I have no opinions either or, but yeah, you know, when your toddler's now <laughs> playing on your computer, you know, crocodile go-go and you're having dinner and all of a sudden you're thinking to yourself, what's happening here, right? Why, why is this all black? So yeah, change with the times. Right. It's just it's really just that simple. You have to change your habits with the time, all the luxury that you have, being able to have all these things accessible. But there's a not a penalty, but there's a price that you have to pay. Yeah. And that means you have to be far more observant. So did you see an uptick courtesy of COVID and outreach around the zero trust construct? Or has it just kind of been a nice steady increase? Or was there like a massive, oh my gosh, we got to dive into this today because now we've got 92% of our staff working from home kind of thing? Or was it, like I said, was it a nice just general bell curve? <laughs> it was absolutely, you know, the hockey stick straight up, right? Because yeah. again, I, I work with larger enterprise companies and they're, they had to let people access their tools, which are their laptops from home, and they had very large networks that they had to protect. So the first thing is remote browser, right? The remote browser access, multi-factor authentication immediately. And those companies and customers of those companies saw that go up, right? So to answer your question, absolutely, yeah. Yes. From that so perspective. Definitely. So COVID helping drive adoption, hopefully. Absolutely. And I mean, maybe that's loosely why the government finally picked it up more specifically. Maybe they have, you know, they're dealing with remote workforce to some limited extent as well. But now they're also dealing with a more sophisticated foreign remote workforce, probably. But yeah, no, that's neat. Considering your background and how long you have been in software and selling to these organizations, you probably have seen a lot of change as far as structure goes. Obviously, the number one person that everyone wants to bark up the tree is the CISO, but you know, out of the time that you have spent there, and Neil, this goes for you too, because obviously you chat with them as well, but you know, how have you seen organizations change and what does the committee usually look like as far as who usually drives implementation in organizations for Zero Trust? Now, that's a great question because I, there is a difference. So in the past, when I would <clears throat> deal with an enterprise, I, I would the person who had the pain, who was actually working or needed the tool, and then it would go into a budgetary area, the budget people, this, you know, and then at some point, the person who signs the check, right, which would be, if it's, it, it generally would be someone in technology, but the CIO, and then maybe the CFO. Now with Zero Trust and Security, we have the CISO in the house. Here's what's interesting is every enterprise I work with, pretty much all of them have different structures. The CISO might be a fresh new guy. And he has deputies who then listen and gather, right? And then you have another layer that executes. So it really is a three-prong. You'll have CISOs who are out really being more political for the company, right? And providing, you know, more guidance at a high level out in front of the crowd, right? They're there, they're at events, they're being thought leaders, et cetera, right? So, and then you have your IT director who very much also wants to be a part or usually is the driver. And then the CIO, he wants to know everything. He rules the kind of the hen house. He, I would have to say most of the CIOs that I deal with feel that they are, they're the last check mark, right? I mean, CISO is good, but he's not CIO. So that's pretty clear. And then, you know, and then you have your OT division now, which is very hot, which should not be 
forgotten because right now in technology, I mean, what is Tesla? Is it a computer or is it a car, right? It's a computer with wheels, but you know, it needs to be protected equally as much from threat and et cetera, as a laptop sitting in the CIO or CFO's office, right? With all that content. So it's evolving, but I would have to say it's an interesting space because I think there's gonna be a couple of other C-levels that will be introduced to Right. And they'll be focused around, yeah, not as much because you have internal security that you got to take care of, which, you know, the CISO and the deputies do. They have an external CISO, you know, group, which could be networks guys or et cetera. So it's just a little bit all over the place. And I think they're still very siloed, but I do see them coming together. One of the first things I always talk about is creating a Z tab, a zero trust advisory board. And you can really call it whatever you want, but, you know, you need to have one person from the different units. HR, sales and marketing, because they're launching new products, clearly ITOT, CFO needs to be, a, you have to have that group come together and decide what's most important, where are the crown jewels, and we need to pull from everyone's budget because we can't give the CISO and security very minimal because we gave so much last year. It doesn't work that way. You have to spend accordingly. You just, you have to spend because quite frankly, ransomware is going up, not down or, you know, it's not um, Mm -hmm. non-growth. So you have to spend accordingly. And sometimes HR has this huge budget around training. Clearly training is not working as well as they thought it was going to work because they did get breached. So maybe taking some of the budget. So again, you have to, at some point, those key people need to come together, create a, a group, an advisory group, and then begin to have conversations. And if that happens, you'll see other probably C-levels created for organizations who can run that or be in charge of that. Yeah. So, but I will tell you, yeah, the legacy guys are hanging on right now because, you know, they've been in IT for a long time and they haven't been making all the decisions. And, but if they're not, I'm sorry, if they're not learning and growing, I don't know. I, you know, I feel sorry for the companies who have to work through that. Yeah, I think that's honestly a general theme that we've been hearing, even with our last episode with Nick, who's now kind of off in his own thing and used to be the first CISO for Space Force. He was essentially saying the same thing. And that's the inspiration for why he's kind of generating content and helping train people on Zero Trust today. But I'm curious, even Neil, on your side, I mean, I assume over the age that you've been in this space, you're a very technical person from the threat intel side of the house. But I mean, you probably see the same thing as you're working with organizational leaders, CISOs. I mean, at what point has you know there been a drastic shift from people who have to be technical leaders and almost more of a business-oriented person? Yeah, so I think historically we've had CISOs, to Marine's point, we've had CISOs who were more old-school, first-brand, first-layer CISOs, first-round, where they were very compliant, coming out of a lot of the big breaches in the early 2000s, right, with Home Depot, Lowe's, TJX, so on and so forth. They were the poor people that were like either either just good policy management type individuals, or they were the people that just incidentally got promoted to CISO so they could get fired when something bad happened. And yeah, I mean, well, Companies wanted scapegoats when all this stuff was going on, right? And so that's how they worked it initially. And thankfully, I think we've overcome that as a primary. Oh, we screwed up. Fire the CISO and we'll call it all good at the board. No, thankfully, we've seen breaches happen today where that's not the case, thankfully. But that first layer brand of CISOs were very compliance driven because in the 90s, they had to be business compliance driven. And that's the world they grew up in. But so they weren't technical. So to get back onto that, they weren't overly 
IT type technical people. They were the types that could sit in a room and ask the five other people in the room what needed to be done and they'd go politicize it back up to leadership. I think this current generation of CISOs within our various age brackets, right, with, you know, that 30 to 40 year old groups that are coming out right now, they have to be technical, even though now they're starting to get asked to have a seat at the board um, in that that C-suite level, they still need to be technical. And the downside is they also still need to be able to come up and play the politics game. But all that should map out to some kind of business risk understanding and having those requirements mapped out from business risk requirements and understanding what the dollars are if X, Y, and Z happens and still being able to have people on your staff and talk with them technically to figure out what your actual product and Intel requirements are downstream to mitigate those dollars up here, right? Even if they never actually happen, that's how you start to get money. And I still think today the CISO is the person who has to be the champion of a zero trust mentality just because it's still such a fresh construct. Absolutely. That, and it's a culture shift in and of itself, right? And you know, Joe Sarah sitting as a L2, L3 analyst in a SOC can't enact that change. They can maybe voice concern that it would be a good idea today. And then hopefully that's the person who becomes CISO in five to 10 years. But they're not the ones who are going to be able to lead it, promote it, develop it. It has to come from, at the very least, the CISO. And that CISO has to be able to understand both the technical challenges as much as politicize it and understand the business risks today. If that CISO isn't adept at both, that CISO is not going to be a CISO for very long, in my opinion. Um, I Thank you for saying that. That's 100% correct. That's the one thing that if I, if I get a chance to talk to a CISO, that's the one thing I hope he understands that if nothing else, if you just begin going down that pathway and put yourself, you need to have that seat at the table because it's not fair. Because if you do get breached, right, it's not fair that you're the let go. If you were at the table, it's still not fair, but at least if you're at the table and you knew the business requirements, then you could prepare for it. But if you're not at the table, how do you do that? So yeah, good point, Neil. Yeah, yeah. I, I, as an Intel analyst, I strive for requirements and everything I do because I'm not going to go spend money, time and effort on something if someone doesn't think it's a legitimate requirement somewhere, even if it's my interest or if I think it's a good value prop, I shouldn't be wasting my time if nobody else agrees with me, no matter how right or wrong I am. And then so back to the CISOs and everybody else, if you've at least made the promotion and mapped it out and said, here's the risk, here's the dollars that it'll cost us, and here's how much it costs to mitigate it, and the board says no, and you've done that due diligence, and it actually happens, and then they fire you, then you can just walk out the door and you know do whatever vulgar things you want to do to them because they were wrong, not you, at that point. But to your point, if you've identified it but you haven't promoted it the right direction, and then the stuff happens, then it is on the CISO, you know. They didn't do a good job at being the politician up at the board level, even if they were good technically and were able to figure it out what needed to be done. So, yeah, it's a rough world. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, thank you for. Yeah, seriously. I mean, every time I see someone say anything about being a CISO, they're just like, no, please get me away from this. You do not want to follow this path. There is no like proper path to get there. But that's why I brought that up with both y'all is it's not to dig into CISOs of yesterday and how they've evolved but really to highlight for any organization that's looking to adopt zero trust or just cybersecurity in general, that they need someone with that background and skill set at the C level. They need to be in the boardroom having those conversations because 
at the end of the day, no, it is not revenue generating. But if you get a breach or you're impacted in any way, shape, or form, and you've accepted those risks, obviously it's going to impact you in a dozen different ways. So I think from the implementation process and the adoption and doing cybersecurity the right way, if you don't want it to obviously hamper or impact scaling the business, it needs to be a component of business. Yeah. I don't know if it's a real term or not, but revenue loss mitigation, I feel like that's a real business too. You know, I feel like- you know, it actually is. I know when we studied and we're becoming licensed, one of the discussions we had was you can prove that you can you know, save the company money just by simply beginning to understand the products you have in your portfolio and optimize them, right? And don't renew because it's three years and you have to really take a look at the products. A lot of products have very similar features. And I always think about new things that we buy, particularly new software, you don't really use, maybe use 30, 40% of it. You don't really use all the features that the software has. I mean, look at the reporting tools today are mind blowing. The data that you can extract and create columns for. Yeah, so there is that benefit if you decide to go down to zero trust. And I try to share that probably in the first or second time we have a conversation, let's try to optimize. That's kind of, let's get some money going here. Let's show that you don't need, you can create a return on investment if you can optimize what you have. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense, especially if you're consolidating from older technology and aspects like that. So it's pretty easy to balance out that if there was a languishing resource tool, whatever, just sitting out there and now it's implemented in something else and you're capturing and making use of it, that's a pretty good argument for your return on investment. You're cutting out the the junk that was just hanging out there. Right, absolutely. Yeah, and then I know we skipped past this, but I do wanna, I have not actually heard organizations coaching the implementing organization on building that advocacy organization internally. So I absolutely love that idea. You know, Neil, I don't know if you've run into that yourself, but I think that makes perfect sense to basically work with them to have that internal champion team that kind of pushes things forward. I think oh, externally yeah. coming from RC, we want that kind of thing. But if you're actually help coaching them towards that, that just makes perfect okay. sense. Yeah, it's a good idea. I think anytime you can get, so slight back step, once again, as an Intel analyst, I think a good Intel analyst at any or government or private sector, if you're letting them do their job is to help tie up all the disparate ends within whatever concept that you're trying to build, not just cyber security. So if you've got, most people think of an Intel analyst in, the, in this world as the person helping do the research, collection, data organization, stuff like that. And that's loosely what an Intel analyst brings to the table, but really that's more of a research specialist at the end of the day, doing that low level stuff. An Intel analyst is someone who wants to collaborate, coordinate, and extract additional data from all the people and assets that are available and be able to kind of coordinate efforts or at least insights and help make heads or tails of what's going on. So for me personally, having that kind of advisory board mentality when you're going through this project and getting insights from every single piece of the pie, not just the cybersecurity crew, not just who sits under the CISO, is extremely impactful on these types of projects by and large. And so that's a really good insight and really good point to think about because like you mentioned, HR in particular has a big play in that from training. And most of the time they don't involve the security guys. Most of the time they go out and they buy a third party thing that says, let me spam you and teach you how to not be bad at answering emails or whatever, something like that. Right. 
And then the security team goes out and buys their little one button click report spam. And then, you know, whoever's doing training doesn't know about the one button. Anyway, bunch of fun stuff. Some orgs work better. Obviously, most don't. And so, yeah, for me, it's all about getting as many people in the room, consolidating views and trying to come up with a team approach across multiple organizations within our company. So, All right. So to wrap things up, it has been absolutely lovely to chat with you. I really appreciate your background and your expertise and your stories that you can share here. But I'm just curious, you know, if you had to point one you know, point anyone towards a resource that'll help educate them on zero, you know, is if it's NIST or any of the systems that are in place, where would you point them? Wow. So yeah, NIST would be one right out the gate because you know, that's in real time. It's being updated by our community. So that makes me really happy that people who really care, you know, the actual, you know, cybersecurity professionals update and work with that. But I do, I, I do really do appreciate Forrester. I mean, clearly, John, you know, John Kinderbag, I don't even know what to say, He's a mentor, I've met him in person, I've spoken to him, I just, uh, the very first time I heard him speak, I realized, okay, that's what I need to do. About three or four years ago, he was with Palo Alto, and I said, no, that's what I want to do. So I would probably have to say Forrester. I am a little bit more, yeah, aligned with that. Yeah, I mean, I think that honestly makes sense considering that's sort of where he birthed it, or at least really helped facilitated what Zero Trust is. I know a certain other very large analyst organization has their own take on things, but they definitely have a more holistic approach. So I can certainly appreciate that as well. Yeah. Cool. So that is our episode for today. We will be back in two weeks next Thursday with another episode. So thank you so much for joining us, Maureen. Neil, as always, thank oh, you for doing all the talking. Yeah, it was absolutely my pleasure. Thank you so much, Elliot. Thank you, Neil. Maureen, it was wonderful. I appreciate it. I'm glad we, like, like Elliot mentioned, finally got to get you on the phone. So, Yeah, cool. Yes. Thank you for joining AZT, an independent series. Your hosts have been Elliot Volkman and Neil Dennis. To learn more about Zero Trust, go to AdoptingZeroTrust.com, subscribe to our newsletter, or join our Slack community. Viewpoints expressed during the show do not reflect the brands, employers, or companies of our hosts, guests, or potential sponsors.